G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast where we explore new and challenging ideas a little bit outside of our echo chamber. My name's Conrad. This is Matt. And each week, Matt, in each episode, we put ourselves in intellectual harm's way to bring you new perspectives that you What's may not harm's have. Way? <laughs> More than you would ever know. First of all, say welcome to new friends and regular friends, also welcome, and super friends, super welcome. Your support, very appreciated. These are the people who went to itisdigest.org, signed up, support the show, means the earth, the whole earth to us. Mm-hmm. So thank you for your support. And the heavens. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> <laughs> if you could help us get more clout, and how, you get, how do you get clout, Conrad? Well, on the internet, clout is gained by mm-hmm. reviews. Apple Podcasts has a great review thing. The more reviews you get, the yep. more clout you get. Then when I reach out to guests and friends to get them on the show, they go, oh, how many reviews you got? I'm like, well, I've got like 200. They're like, well, come back when you got 300. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I emailed one guy and he's like, I don't talk to anyone with less than 400 reviews on their podcast. So we're getting there. Mm. We are getting there. So with your help, we can get there. But I have the tiger playing in the background. (laughs) Every one of them going five star. I could put that over five. Five star. Five star. And friends of the show have not only gone five star. I've got one here. This is from ABCDFGHG via Apple Podcasts. They say, Conrad is so smart. (laughs) I I just picked this. I just picked it. Just popped out of nowhere. Just like, if I'm going to read one out, it's it's just so smart. It's just random. It's just random. He creates a great platform to discuss controversial topics by asking extremely thoughtful questions without debating. How's that? That's awesome. So I'm I'm glad that that's the impression. One, thank you very much. Thank you. I don't think I'm that smart, but I'm glad you think I'm that smart. But you are, Conrad. Hey, thank you. I'll try and absorb that compliment and not deflect it with humor. But I'm glad that what we're doing doesn't come across as debates. Sure. And in this episode, I actually have avoided debate as well because mm. I think I think friends of the show really appreciate just exploring the human experience of someone's mm. idea, how they got there. Some updates. Um, Matt, you know we're obviously trying to grow our YouTube channel. We mm-hmm. have a YouTube channel. We can subscribe there. Yep. And I was looking at some analytics. I was very Matt Potts of me. Nice, proud of you. I was looking. I was looking in there, and I was looking at okay, who's our audience on YouTube, and what stuff are they watching? And I was going, oh, okay, like got a bit of an audience. It's growing. Thank you, friends of the show. And I'm like, oh, they're really into like fitness, like heaps into fitness. There's all these videos of like super fit dudes. I'm like, what? I'm like, what's going on? Well, the episode that did really well was with friend of the show, Dr. Joe Court. Who, who in the ad episode was a great episode. Straight men enjoy gay sex. That yeah. challenged a lot of people. And I Great topic. And I think what I discovered from how well that episode did, I think there's a lot of straight men that enjoy gay sex. Because it seemed, yeah, I think it hit, mm. this, hit this niche of... Anyway, that was really interesting. So our YouTube audience bit different yeah. to our podcasting audience. You're all welcome. You're mm. all very welcome. I did get a lot of compliments on my eyes. Keep, <laughs> keep them coming. I get I get compliments on my intellect from no, my to listeners. To be honest, like I've set up the lighting to, to pop his eyes. Really makes them we pop. We need more of these viral videos. I don't care where it comes from. <laughs> but if it's the eyes, I'm open for it. So that's how we go on the channel. Just mm-hmm. these baby blues. Uh, but topics um, I've been working on, I'm, I'm currently working on trying to line up, as I've mentioned before, I'm working on an episode about manifesting. So Great. any people that you know that maybe, maybe they're in Bali, I'd love to, I'm going to f- try and find someone in Bali who can mm. talk to me about how to manifest more money, wealth, happiness. Yeah. Let's manifest that. Like, yeah. Are you in? Oh, of course. We could be rich. Yeah. That'd, be, like, that'd be nice. 
So to today's topic, mm-hmm. it's kind of a part two, which I think is going to be a three-parter okay. because as I go into these rabbit holes of previous episode was abortion. I'm still in the rabbit hole of abortion because it turns out a lot of little different rabbit warrens going left, right, everywhere. Obviously, I can't explore them all, but I want to explore a few of them. And last week we had a story about a woman who went from pro-choice to pro-life and her journey going through that. This week, I got a friend on the show, Matt. Yeah? Yeah. And she's actually a returning friend of the show. Right. So Brenda, from she's a YouTuber. Okay. God is Grey is the YouTube channel. Okay. And she's a Christian. Christian. I'd put in the disclaimer, progressive Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, Your type. My type. (laughs) (laughs) And she is, I suppose you'd say, pro-choice. Okay. So last last week's episode was more of a Christian worldview being pro-life. And you'd think, oh, Christian. It's really, it's unusual. Yes. Christians can't be pro-choice, can they? Mm. Well, alas, they can. So... I'm just going to read a warning label before I roll this interview. And maybe if you want to confess some biases that you're, maybe you do that first. I've said she's a YouTuber. She's progressive. She's from California. Yeah, the God is gray thing is interesting. Yeah. And particularly that demographic profile yep. would make her more like, is she surrounded by her fellow friends in California? And Okay. So the setting, a bit of political sphere there. Yeah. You know, it's very left. And yes. so being pro-choice is like. Bread and butter. So she's still just trying to make the Christian worldview plug into oh, her, her environment. Yeah. would be could too much be. of a price to pay if she was to go full like pro-life yep. so we in know a California environment. You, you'd be guessing she'd be a Democrat. Sure. You know. And these are all guesses. Yes. But there's my biases. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Good to get them off your chest if you're playing along I at home. I feel better now. Yeah. You gotta let, we're all thinking it. Yeah. Let's just judge people out loud and, and say, I'm sorry. Yeah. And then move on and, and see if we were right in our judgments or not. Yeah. So to get this episode, I'll just turn over the packet here and read you the warning label. Okay. The warning label on this one goes, this episode will contain traces of political ideology. Abortion always does. Mm. It's it's so intertwined. It's it's wrapped up in... Is that a, a bad thing? Like, why do we need to... Why is it a warning? I don't know. I think you just find it there. Okay. Some people are allergic to nuts. <laughs> nuts are great. It's good for people. Warning. We will discuss. (laughs) Controversial. Gay sex. That could be a warning, but not in this one. Okay. Okay. And uh, a healthy dose of of tribalism. You'll probably be feeling as you listen. And large chunks of politically loaded language. So remember the last episode where I was like, oh, the baby. And you're like, oh, is it baby or fetus? Yeah. That's politically loaded language. Oh, really? Yeah, because if yeah. you you give away your of course you yeah. give away your tribe by what you say. Yeah, okay, I yeah. get it. Yeah, so so there's some things to kind of keep in mind. There might be some side effects as you listen. You might be a bit uncomfortable, especially if you disagree. That you might have like maybe some physical <laughs> physical symptoms of like shaking your head if you're disagreeing. You'd be like, oh. yeah. And this whole <laughs> abortion thing confuses me because yes. I'm just like my old self and new self, and yeah. from where you're coming from, a religious worldview yeah. where, where it would have been pro-life, yeah. And now you know, deconstructed, yeah. Uh, Who knows what matters this month? Yeah, <laughs> we don't know. Well, we can find out. <laughs> Super friends of the show, yeah. We'll sign up artistdigest.org. We'll chat after, and then we'll see which Matt we get. Whether mm. he's you know more conservative today or maybe more that episode last week and if you haven't listened to listen to it uh definitely tune in i, don't, I was just surprised how much it brought up for me because for me if you were to just ask me in the street casually yeah. i'd be like oh yeah pro choice like oh, oh it's just easy it's yeah. easy 
But then after hearing a story and I was like, oh yeah, yeah the nuance started getting me. Awesome. Because that's exactly what, what I'm trying to do. And hopefully friends of the show can see what I'm trying to do as well. And I have one more episode after this one, which will muddy the waters even further. Sure. And I think I've, I've learned something really awesome from this process. It actually isn't as divisive and dangerous idea as I thought, which okay. is surprising, but we'll unpack that later. So here, Matt, is the interview between myself and friend of the show, Brenda from God is Grey, about abortion. Today, I'm joined by returning, I'm going to say good friend of the show, Brenda Marie Davis, aka God is Grey. Thank you so much for joining I Just Die Just once again. Good day. <laughs> Thank you for your cultural yeah. greeting here. I appreciate it. I have a pretty large Australian it's, fan base, I've learned, because I think, I, we might have talked did, about this before, but Australians go through the same nonsense that American Christians go through. <laughs> You've, you've kind of nailed why I'm back here at abortion, because over the years I've noticed during my political awakening, I, you know, I meet an American and my fun introduction fact is like, hey, I watch your politics like you watch sport. It's very interesting. And they go, oh, like, what's the point? Like, what do you get out of it? I go, well, we actually in some ways follow, and more recently, we kind of follow the same issues to a much lesser scale, but more and more I'm noticing the flashpoints in the culture war of America and the two divisive sides is trying to be imported to Australian politics. I hope we don't go down that route, but it, it is, there is that reflection yet there. So that's why I'm stepping into this space again, because it's definitely popping up in conversations at home, sitting around the dinner table, the America, something happens in America, high court overturns Roe v. Wade, boom, all of a sudden Australians are talking about it too. So. Oh, yeah. That's why. That's scary. Okay, dang. Well, I'd like to ask you a few questions, Brenda, to, to kick off this topic. So abortion, we're talking about abortion. I explored a book uh, and it was the perspective of how someone goes from being pro-choice to pro-life and that was the journey they went on. And Brenda, you're someone who's very open and honest about your journey with abortion, your ideas on abortion. And so I'd, I'd like to begin, before we kind of explore your take on it and where you'd like to lead the discussion, because there's many different facets to it, I'd like to ask you two questions. One question to begin with is, why should people care about this issue? Why should people care about abortion? People might be clicking, maybe they click the clickbait. And went, uh, I don't know if I really care. You know, maybe I'm just a guy just going through life. I don't really care. Why, why should that person care? Well, you hit the nail on the head when you said guy. Like, I don't think any person, <laughs> you know, I don't think any person with a uterus would take this lightly because it's a threat to mm -hmm. our well-being and our right to democracy and autonomy. So every woman is forced to address it. Every person with a uterus is forced to address it because it's something that we reckon with, that our friends will reckon with, our mothers, our daughters. And there are so many men I've talked to in America who after the Roe v. Wade issue and, uh, and it was overturned officially, just like casually walking through the world, like I just got out of a crazy... I don't even know how to describe it. It was just like walking through the city feeling like a ghost, like something terrible had happened. And I felt it all through my body. And I would talk to guy friends and men that I know in my life and be like, can you believe we just lost our rights? And 
the amount of men who are completely disengaged, who didn't even know what happened, who don't know the details, who don't know that there are no exceptions for rape or incest, who don't even know how the female body works. Like men get the privilege, they think, of being disengaged just the same way that rich people think they can be disengaged from issues of climate change. They think it's not going to affect them because it affects them the least and they're the last ones to actually realize it. But men really need to step up and pay attention to these issues because you're honestly dumb and so short-sighted if you don't know that. If you sleep with uterus-having people, this issue can come knocking right at your door. And if you have a daughter in the future, if you have someone else that will be affected by this and then you're stuck, um, I don't know, having to reckon with um, a terrible tragedy that comes to your doorstep. Like the thing is that it's true that a lot of wealthy people, a lot of people in these certain like upper echelon circles are not going to have to contend too much with it because they've always been able to skirt the law and they'll always be able to have an illegal abortion because they have the access, the money to fly to states like California that are always going to preserve that right. But point being, it can really affect anyone who has sex with a woman because you're the one that's going to have to pay that child support or skirt your responsibility and be a deadbeat father, or reckon with the fact that someone in your family is assaulted and there's no way out of it, and you have to walk her through the process of having a baby against her will. Like, I'm on a tangent and I'm not being super eloquent about it, but it just, it's so silly to me to even have to address the people that have sex with us and try to explain to them why this is actually important thing for them to think about and reckon with in their own selves. And also, you guys could step up and advocate for us, for us. Like, I see so many men on the side of abortion rights not saying anything, staying out of it, feeling like it has nothing to do with them, it's not their fight, but it absolutely is. So besides just, like, shitting on guys and teasing you for not paying attention. There's also mm -hmm. the bit of encouragement to say like, you absolutely have a voice in this because it can and will affect your life eventually. Mm -hmm. Because guys have the biological privilege of having that arm's length distance of like, mm, yeah, at the end of the day, I can just disengage and I almost have that choice to engage and you're encouraging saying, hey, this affects us. Do you care about us? And it does actually affect you even though you could choose to ignore it. Let me yeah. flip that question for you and say, Americans, as an, as an outsider Australian, you guys care a lot about a lot of things. You're very like <laughs> much more active, much more involved. You're protesting is 10, 10x hours. We're, we're a bit more disengaged uh, from a lot of things, even our sports. You know, I was at a college football game once in America and, I, and this game, this, this football, American football goes for a long time. It's like watching the cricket. Uh, it's like a four-hour game. And I was in this section of the stands, and these guys were standing up the whole time, Brenda. The whole time, they were like jangling their keys at certain points. They were doing different chants at a different thing. And after one hour, I was like, my legs hurt. Can we all just please all agree, let's sit down. Let's sit down and watch this game. But <laughs> obviously, no one did because they're, they're so enthusiastic. So maybe to you know, the enthusiasm that translates into politics and translates into division because people are so enthusiastic about it. Why shouldn't people care about this? 
You mean like, why do they need to just like sit down and chill out? <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. Like, do is there like you can even say no? Like, people should always care. But is there any argument to say, like, maybe you care too much about this? Well, the people who really bought into the lie that the um, Republican-led moral majority instigated in the 1970s and 80s. Um, those people do care too much and I wish they would sit down and listen because I think in our pre-conversation we were talking about how you saw my debate with Lila Rose, who's a prominent pro-lifer. And um, what a lot of Christians don't know is our history, is that this was not a prevalent issue for many, many years. As a matter of fact, in a lot of different Christian practices, Abortion was seen as the more humane thing to do. If someone was in poverty, if there was a threat to her health, men in those orders took a step back and said, this isn't about us. This is a medical issue. This is a private issue. We're not going to get involved as the church because we are a spiritual place. Like that is where we belong. And it really started poisoning the well when politicians got involved in the whole issue. And in the 1970s, 1980s, they were having a hard time gaining political party and the or political power in the Republican Party because their main issue prior to that was segregation. So people like Jerry Falwell were passionate about keeping segregation. They wanted their schools not segregated at all um, or not integrated at all. So when they lost that issue and they recognized that they would lose followers and that more people were starting to disagree with that idea and we were making progress as far as racial justice goes and equality goes, they had to choose another hot button issue that would get people all passion, passionate and riled up again to fight for the Republican Party. And the issue that they chose randomly was abortion. And they put out a bunch of political, um, what word am I looking for? Like they basically took it on the road and they were trying to sell this idea that it was anti-Christian and that it was a sin to have an abortion. And at the beginning, Protestants and evangelicals weren't getting on board. They were really stepping back and they were like, this is not what we're about. This is not in our lane. We're going to stay in our spiritual lane. But funny enough, I've heard um, in my research that... A part of the reason that the Republican Party started to win this argument or to get people on the side of being anti-abortion was because it was also around the time of the sexual revolution where birth control was being legalized, where women were having more autonomy and freedom with their sexuality. And a lot of these events that were anti-abortion were eventually being intended by Planned Parenthood there were people from Planned Parenthood outside protesting these events. So they ended up apparently getting all this national attention on this supposed fight between feminists and people who wanted to see abortion stands and these conservative people who were fighting for the rights of the unborn, so to speak. So we both kind of took a hand in propping this up as an issue. Like I often look at things like the Westboro Baptist Church where it's just a small family in a very contained space and they do horrendous things like go protest a soldier's funeral or a gay person's funeral and they're hold um, 
picket signs outside that say God hates uh, derogatory slang for homosexual people or you're going to burn in hell, all of those things. And when I see something like that on the news over and over again and people getting nationwide attention for these little tiny protests, I've always kind of sat back and thought, can we not draw attention to this? Like, can we not make it a bigger issue than it is? Because a lot of times these things aren't issues until someone is screaming, people are screaming loudly in the other direction, and then they get blown out of proportion. And I really think that's what happened here because, again, this hadn't been an issue for decades, especially among Christians. And now there are certain talking points that are just laid out as absolute fact. You know, a lot of these pro-lifers will say it is a biological fact that life starts at conception or things like that. And these are not like widely accepted notions or ideas. But again, when we get hard headed and just put our like horse shield blinders on and just start running to champion a certain cause, I think in America, I've noticed especially that people just start talking all over each other, aren't listening, just are speaking their talking points and not actually looking at the compassionate side of it, not actually addressing the true history of where it came from. So I don't know. That's a complex question because there's no option to not care anymore because it's the loss of human rights and the loss of uh, human beings' autonomy. And that is something that everyone needs to step up and pay attention to. I think maybe... In the 80s, it would have been nice if we stopped paying attention, but unfortunately, that didn't happen, and here we are. So you're saying it's it's too late to not care, but in the sense of why shouldn't people care about it, the example you gave, there can be a small portion of people that, I mean, in the age of the algorithm, you can then control a national conversation. So you can shift the consciousness of a society to give a disproportionate weight to an issue that previously it probably shouldn't have that prominence doesn't make it not important but should this issue potentially be the flashpoint between two warring political sides are you pro-life ah if you are i will not vote for you so obviously politics is complicated who benefits from what policies it's always a mix some people do well out of this some people don't it's very complex but the it sounds like you're saying this 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 group of people historically created it a big issue to perhaps make people think about something complex that actually to make that really simple and then control that conversation. And now it sounds like you're saying now you don't have a choice, but to be a part of it now, now, now you kind of been sucked into yes. that. That was beautifully articulated. That's exactly what I was saying because, um, you know, I wouldn't, I don't disregard abortion in any way, and I've been really clear about that. It is an emotional subject for me in many ways, but at the same time, there is carnage of human beings and people that are truly hurt by these policies, by Roe v. Wade being overturned, and they're just in the wreckage of this battle that that had should have never even existed because the fact of the matter is, and this is a provable fact over and over and over again, abortion being illegal does not prevent abortion. It just makes it unsafe. And that just happens everywhere you see it. There are women in El Salvador that are imprisoned, that are in jail because they had an abortion. Like, it just goes to show you the length, um, 
that someone will go or the desperation that someone might feel, the fact that a young woman in El Salvador will take her own life or will risk being imprisoned all for the sake of having an abortion shows you that it has nothing to do with this surface level, easy peasy qualifier of is this wrong or is this right? Or like, are we okay with abortion theoretically or not? When people are faced with it in real time, they have reactions that are real and those are what we should be focusing on in society. Like I remember watching a story that Lila Rose put out sometime after our debate. I think it ended up turning out to be, it didn't feel much like a conversation. And she was saying, okay, Roe v. Wade has been overturned in 50% of the states in America. This is a huge victory, but we have so much further to go. And I was sitting there like an idiot thinking, oh my God, okay, she's gonna say, so now we have to fix the foster care and abortion system. And now we have to make sure women in poverty are taken care of. And we have to amend all of these issues of disparity and wealth disparity and tax the rich, et cetera. Like, of course, I didn't think she was gonna go that far, but I thought the next sentence she was gonna say was like, so we need to buckle down and take good ass care of these women that we are forcing them to give birth. But instead she literally was like, so next step, the other 50% of the United States. And I'm like, again, making it illegal does not solve the problem at all. As a matter of fact, all of us, and you're already seeing it on TikTok, I see so many tragic stories of the ripple effects of people just pushing through their dogma, which is an extremist dogma. I've mentioned before that over 90% of Americans believe that in the case of rape or incest, it should be legal for a person to obtain an abortion. So the fact that many states are not making that the case, they're taking the extremist view and taking away abortion rights for rape and incest victims, that means that a vast minority of Americans are actually winning out and dominating our politics on this issue right now, which is another good reason why no one should sit down and not care about this issue, especially men, because we really need representation to push out these extremist views and live in a country that represents the vast majority of us instead of the vast minority of us. Mm. You've, you've brought the conversation to, I think what I'm witnessing is the difference between these two worldviews. When I read this, this book uh, called Unplanned by Abby, someone can't remember the name, uh, put in the show notes and her journey maps what, what I think is described as a moral transformation within herself. I used to think it was this, then I witnessed life like this and I couldn't do it again and therefore it's wrong. And she kind of, she kind of ends there. And as I was talking to Matt, uh, co-host of the show, it, it, it struck me as the conversation just doesn't end there. That was her journey. It's very interesting. And you seem to be pulling towards, and this is where I think the debates as they happen they happen on a few different levels. You're pulling to this, as I watched you and Lila interact in, yeah, it was pretty much a debate. That's how I would characterize it. Um, interesting conversation for sure. And it was, Lila was the focus on the moral element. So when does life begin? How can we do this? This is a human life, like equating it, drawing the parallels to murder. This is the moral framework. And as I hear you describe, you know, the things that, you struggle with around this whole issue, you're coming to the solution portion of it, the practical outcomes 
of what this ideology seems to lead to because ultimately the moral conversation is an interesting one. It's a challenging one. Matt and I as two blokes engaging with it going, yeah, when is life? Well, what is it? It's potential life. Is it the same as murder? Well, no, is it different? Is, is life, oh, should I be a vegetarian then if life's this important? And, you know, there's a lot of ethics and morality involved. This moral conversation happens on one level and then there's there's the pragmatic solutions that are the outflow politically and you seem to be painting this picture of the political landscape in which this happen happens the outflow of going okay if if lila kind of is politically winning here and some states are banning it and and the solutions are happening from what she wants which to be honest i i didn't hear her talk much about that in the conversation it was like if I can establish that this is murder or this is wrong or this is a morally reprehensible thing that the state needs to step in on, then therefore the solution is for the state to make it illegal. It is to do all these things. And and she would probably agree and say, uh, and I'd love to have her on the show, but she would probably agree and say, yeah, we do need to make the foster care system all these things. But it's interesting that, yeah, you're, what you're seeing as you observe um, someone like Lila you're seeing, you're not seeing the same fervor and passion and energy thrown behind the outflow of a, a, a state mandating what someone can do and go, okay, well, there's going to be more children in poverty. There's going to be uh, more abuse in those situations. There's going to be a great level of suffering. There's going to be young women. I know there was that, you know, it's, it is rare, but you see it in the, when it pops up in the news of, I think the 14 year old being a rape victim that then wasn't allowed because she wasn't mature enough to get an abortion. And therefore you're like, well, okay, now she has to raise it. And does she have a support network, a mom, or are you just going to let a 14 year old girl have like raise a child? And then obviously the complexities is kind of where I see you taking the conversation and, and where you're emphasizing it. And this is the misalignment of the debate that I, I keep seeing. It's like any debate I see is you've got one person coming in on the moral and then the other person coming in on the pragmatic. And it's almost like because of the tribalism of this debate, because Republicans are pro-life and Democrats are pro-choice, you can't there can't be an in-between and that makes it very difficult for those sorts of conversations. Well, I would disagree with the language that you're using. I think my stance is incredibly moral. I feel it's a very moralistic stance. I would describe Lila or anti-abortionists as having an existential stance more than that. Like I would say that we both are seeing it from a moral lens, but we are prioritizing completely different things. And maybe you would say she's prioritizing what she believes to be existentially true. So I would say her morality is based on existentialism and perhaps her view of the religious text. And my moral stance is based in pragmatism and reality, honestly, because the things that I'm talking about are tangible. And I know that's sticky too, but like, you're exactly right. There is no meeting of the minds here. And that's what I learned in that debate, because I went into that really naively because my friend Alan Fisher hosted it and I felt really safe and taken care of. And there was preparation beforehand. And I did all of my research about what 
implementing anti-abortion throughout the United States of America would look like in a very pragmatic way. Like one question that I posed was, okay, so you really want 600,000 abortions a year to not occur, which is our current number. And instead of implementing all of these policies that are proven to prevent abortion, such as just childcare is like one basic thing. I'm a working mother and I won't have access to free childcare until he goes to kindergarten. That's five year gap where I have to hustle and figure out how the fuck to make money for me and my child and maintain everything in my household because I don't have the support. Of course, there's always resources. I'm sure I could reach out for more support and I would find systems in place, but you have to be innovative. It's not like in Canada or Berlin where childcare is accessible, where your medical care is accessible. In America, you have to hustle to make those things happen. And so many men leave. The other thing that was completely absent from our conversation was male accountability, male responsibility, men stealthing and taking off condoms just because it feels good. And now that is literally a risk to our very lives. Because if a man does that to you and you're not aware, you don't get plan B in time and you're in one of those states, he is forcing you to carry a baby. Like everything has become so incredibly dangerous as, as it pertains to sexuality, the relationships between men and women. So it's not that I am callous to abortion and that's something that I keep wanting to explain to people when I end up in these situations. Like I always say, I want to see abortions decrease, but the other end of that coin is just saying, and there are tangible ways, provable ways that other countries have shown us we can make this possible without removing a person's God-given free will and autonomy. But people in that other camp, like Lila, are so headstrong and focused because they really believe this statement. Like Lila said this multiple times. She said something along the lines of, abortion is the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world. And at one point, I actually like slammed my head on the table in frustration when she said that because I was like, what? Like, how? oh my God. Like, I really went in with naivete not realizing that statement was really burned in the heads of pro-life people. And now that I understand that, it's true. It feels like an even more insurmountable argument or discussion to have with someone because if someone truly believes that, which people in more extreme points of view do believe that, then there's nothing you can say to that. They believe they're talking about a genocide. And again, I believe I'm talking about a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to have her own bodily autonomy, and a person's right to be born into a world that is hospitable and habitable for them. And we cannot currently guarantee that quality of life in America for orphan children, for foster kids. So she just wants to add 600,000 kids into the world with literally no plan set in place for how we're going to take care of this excess of a half a million brand new people. And the amount of damage that causes people, the amount of turmoil, like I've spoken to women who did give their, their child up for adoption when they were a teenager, and they're just telling me how they've thought about it for the rest of their life, how it's a deep wound and pain that never goes away. Like, 
these are the kind of lives and quality of lives that we are forcing upon young people, children in some instances, teenagers, women who already have children. It's such a gigantic burden to bear. And there's no humane way to remove bodily autonomy from a person. There's just literally no way. Find me a way where you could tell me that is the humane and right thing to do. And from a biblical stance, Jesus certainly never did that. No matter what someone's crime, no matter what they were doing, the spiritual take for me is that you allow every single person to have their own growth. They have their own spiritual journey. And that can never mean that you're removing their bodily autonomy. What I'm hearing at the end there is this innate trust of the individual that says, the woman should have the choice because I trust her ability to make the best choice in the situation. And then the, the argument against that is, I suppose you're saying, no, no, we need the state to ban this. We need the state to regulate this because people, in a sense, can't be trusted. And to circle back a little bit to the conversation around morality, it sounds like what you would like to be heard saying the most that I think is lost in the direct debate of which political solution v this political solution is one side of the debate, the pro-life side of the debate gets to say, we care so much about the unborn. These are real people. We're fighting for human rights. The argument is if you if you dehumanize them, then mega atrocities happen. And you go, yeah, that's you know, dehumanization is is atrocious. There is something, you know, there is something there about you know potential human life and and, and is it human life? And there's, there's a grappling in there, and they clearly care and have a passion and and build their morality around that aspect. But it sounds like you're trying to add to that and say. I'm also compassionate too, and it's my compassion and, and morality that brings me to the point where I say, I don't know if I can put this many children into harm's way, this many children into uncertain situations. And I don't know if it's like, it sounds like you're saying you want to decrease abortions. You could, in some level, probably annoy a lot of people, like I like to annoy a lot of people too, by almost taking that label and say, I'm pro-life too. This is exactly why my stance is is here. So it sounds like you're saying, I would love, I'm, in some sense, I could hear you saying, I agree with what you're saying, Lila, that's really, really important. And I think the flashpoint of disagreement is that you would like to do it by removing a woman's right to choose and the nuanced situations and the necessary elements. And you'd like to use the state and the government to enforce this mandate. And perhaps you think the more compassionate solution is to say, well, how about we reduce abortions through uh, helping single mothers have easy access to childcare? Because like, like you mentioned, you go, oh, there are resources out there. Now, I live in Australia, and we do have resources, and I, I would say they're better than yours, <laughs> to my Australian arrogance there. Yeah, I think that could, could, could be true. And even that is... It's difficult. I've been on government assistance before. I've been a student. I've been unemployed. And it's annoying. Like, I tell you what, it's, it's accessible <laughs> in Australia, but I've got to, like, line up for a few hours. I've got to, like, fill out an annoying – it's annoying. So I can't imagine that if, if America has them, like you're saying, it's not that easy. And if it's not easy, people can't actually get it. So it could theoretically exist, and it might not actually be there. So it sounds like you're saying, I would like to be I, – I want to agree with this person, and it's your compassion and morality – that says, 
I think the solution that is the most compassionate to the unborn children, to born children, is to reduce abortions through a list of other mechanisms rather than enforcing a blanket ban and then moving on to get it to the whole state rather than um, moving to help you know single mothers and, and children in poverty. Absolutely. And I would say it's not only the more compassionate uh, point of view, it's also the provably more effective point of view. Like I always bring up, you know, and this is a hard contrast because we are so different. Maybe Canada is a better example. Because I was going to say in Norway and Sweden, they have such amazing ways of taking care of their citizens. They have the lowest abortion rates in the entire world. And this always stands out to me. I remember this is way before um, I even, wait, did I have my own abortion yet? I think I did. Yes, I had already. It wasn't on the forefront of my mind, but it was definitely still something that I was processing and working through because that happened to me or I made that choice during an abusive relationship. And I remember I was in Berlin visiting my friend Stacy and there was a couple there and they were just super in love and they were hot and heavy and they were, I think, only very like new and fresh into their relationship. And they started talking about pregnancy and birth and I was just eavesdropping and they were talking about like if they got pregnant, like honestly, we would just keep it. And I was like, really? Like you guys are a new couple. And the girl was like, well, we have free education until they're 18. We have free health care. We have free child care. Like there's literally no reason aside from me just not wanting a child to actually have a child. And mm. I'm open to it. This is the thing that American, quote, pro-life women and people are not understanding or not recognizing that because we do not take proper care of our citizens and the women and the children in this country, it is not an easy choice. So many of us don't have the privilege of choosing to have a baby. Like, again, I'm resourceful. I've been on government care too. Same thing in America. Like, it's practically a part-time job. How many times you have to call, re-up, tell them different things, send in different paperwork. They always need you to have a fax machine and you don't even know where you can find a fax machine. Like all of these obstacles in place. And anyway, I could have made that choice. I think I could have been resourceful in my abusive relationship and had a baby. But when I was listening to this Berlin woman talk about it, I felt so envious of her. So I was like, wow. If I had been abused here in Berlin and I was pregnant, I would have sat there and been like, okay, well, what are my obstacles? And the obstacle would have been one sole obstacle. And that would be maintaining the custody of my child to keep my child away from my abuser, making sure we were safe. And that is enough. Like sometimes, and there are so many women in this country that die at the hands of an abusive partner. It's the, what is it? It's either the number one or the number two cause of death for young women, like under the age of 35 or something, is spousal murder or partner murder. Hmm. So that is enough on a woman's plate to be like, oh shit, I'm pregnant and now I have to protect myself and my baby from this person. But mm -hmm. that, if you're in that situation, should be the only thing you're focused on. Instead, in America, it's that end great, I'm going to lose my job. I'm not going to have access to things. I don't know how I'm going to feed them. I don't know how I'm going to clothe them, how I'm going to do this on my, like myself. And for me, it's not about a necessity to lean on the government. That's another accusation that a lot of conservative voices will give. Like, 
that people in certain situations are lazy and they just don't want to work and they are going to like rely on government assistance to take care of them. But the easiest argument to that is like, yo, listen, y'all, what's going to happen with this excess of 600,000 kids you didn't want aborted? You don't think they're going to need government assistance? Do you know how much mother effing money we're going to have to spend on just this horrendous problem that we create because you instituted laws that prove not to work in other countries. And this is the mess that we have here to contend with. Again, instead of just focusing on the real matters at hand, which is taking care of children and mothers and fostering communities and spaces where we can be safe in our world. And again, we don't have enough of that in this country. And the last thing I'll say on that too is a lot of pro-life people will be like, but my church and my organization provides all these resources for women. And I used a little mocky voice. I'm not trying to mock that because I actually really appreciate it. And it's like, go on girl, please do that. Obviously we need it more than ever now. But to me, I'm like, why does it have to be on the back of your little church? Like, why can't we just advocate for a society where we all agree to these certain levels and standards of behavior where men don't leave, where men are held accurately accountable for impregnating someone. And again, all of those systems are so fucked up. Like I've had friends that are on government assistance. I've had friends trying to get away from abusers. I've had friends that were completely left by deadbeat dads. And there is just not enough in place to protect us in situations like Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You've you've identified the flaws, what you see as the flaws of the, this the solutions that are being offered and being enforced currently in America right now. I want to hear your perspective and take on your own experience. Like you mentioned just before, just before you've had an abortion before. What talk to me about your journey? I suppose to that point because. And it might be oh, pretty personal to, to go there. And I think that's where the pro-life person will often, like, that's the main, that's where the discussion kind of happens. So I'd really appreciate your insight into your journey with that, because they're going to bring up and, and focus that conversation around what exactly happens when you have an abortion. I noticed that was a key theme of the book I read, that was the flashpoint and the turning point of witnessing through an ultrasound what happens to this baby-looking fetus that looks like a fully tiny, fully-formed child, and that emphasis on the little hands and the little feet and then the brutality of the procedure, that was the flashpoint. And obviously, I don't want to take you anywhere you're, you're not willing to go, but I'd, I'd like your insight, I suppose, as to your experience with that, and then maybe how that conversation when it's brought to because essentially if we take what a lot of pro-life people might be saying they may look at you after hearing you've had an abortion and maybe with empathy like i noticed in in the discussion with lila she's like oh like she had a bit of empathy hearing hearing your journey but then if i'm to hear what they're saying it's like well brenda like you're a murderer because it that's that's what (laughs) you're equating it to yeah, And obviously stepping away from the political implications, like, oh, should you be in jail then if you're a murderer? So we'll step away from that element but and focus on your personal journey, grappling with, I suppose, your like the nuance that you encounter as you make a very difficult decision. 
Yeah, happily. And I agree. This is so much more important to me because it's really interesting that you bring up like, yeah, but you're a murderer. You have empathy for me, but I'm also a murderer. Like, how can those two points exist at the same time? How can we even sit at a table if that's true? Mm. Why am I not in prison? Like, do I not deserve that? And I think that's the really interesting part of the existential crisis of it, which is like, there are so many people who say they're pro-life and granted, a lot of them will go out on the streets or go protest at clinics and actually do something about it. But the vast majority of people aren't going through the streets and screaming about it and going after it the same way that you would think we should a genocide. And I've always thought that was interesting because there's always this accusation of like, um, pro-choice people or people who believe in the right to choose have this like complete and utter disregard for the sanctity of life that it's just like an easy choice we use it like birth control nobody cares you don't feel anything or even the accusation that women could be nine months pregnant eight months pregnant and just willy-nilly get a late-term abortion like the pro-life movement really took to taking or talking about late-term abortions and outlining them as something that is an atrocity where someone is making that decision not out of medical necessity, but because they just decided. Change them on, nine months like, in. Whoops. Yeah, and Trump said that know. too. He's like, you know, you could have a baby and lay it out on a table and you and your doctor can decide. And it's like, those yeah. fallacies are not helping anybody. And it's beyond this idea that it's such a low percentage. It's also just to me, it morally doesn't add up or there's something that doesn't add up about it. Because I'm like, if you really believe that in the genuine core of your heart, I would be protesting through the streets. I would be losing my damn mind if that was actually happening. It's not. And I think a lot of people intellectually know that. But it's a convenient thing to talk about to get people all riled up and on the side that these people think is the right side, supposedly. But all of that said, like, I grew up as a, you know, conservative Christian and abortion was something that I was really arrogant about. I was like, well, luckily, I'll never have to worry about that because I was saving sex for marriage. I was planning on getting married and for life to unfold from there. And instead, I wrote a whole book about it, but basically I ended up leaving that marriage and I went on what I call a tramp age where I slept with a ton of people. And I ended up at the end of that long journey in an abusive relationship where I wound up getting pregnant. So it was really stunning to me because it really played a huge role in my healing. It's hard for me to receive any empathy or sympathy from someone in a conversation of like pro-life versus pro-choice because I, I truly don't feel any sympathy for this experience. It was something that I had to walk through and heal from and reckon with, but also I really attribute it to my realization that my sexuality was in a really unhealed, unhappy place and that it was time to like re-up and figure out what was right for my life again. I, I consider that a huge gift. Like my, I believe it was a girl, which I know is so counter to me being a 
pro-choicer like to even believe that I thought that the spirit of a child had entered my body immediately like I believe not in life at conception but spirit at conception and I also just felt and sensed like it was a girl I gave her a name Rose or I felt like she even gave me the name and all of that said what happened in that experience was I found out I was pregnant. I called my best friend Haven and I had these like two pregnancy tests in my hand. And I was like, this isn't real, right? Like this isn't happening. And she was like, oh honey, it's real. If you took two tests, this is really happening. And I was in a position where I was being gaslit and abused by this person. This man had already been really breaking down my self-esteem my belief in myself, my belief in my capacity to make my dreams come true or have a fulfilling life. So you have to imagine that at that point, spiritually, emotionally, physically, I was really broken down and advocating for myself in that situation was really hard because it was like I was already laying on the floor by the time I figured this out. And there was this strength that built up inside of me paired with hormones and they were contending with each other so the hormones of pregnancy were like we're having a baby let's take care of this like let's nurture your body and then there was a more i guess intellectual or maybe even spiritual pondering about but is this right am i ready for this do i especially want to bring a child into the world with this particular person I still hadn't recognized him as abusive until we did break up, but I knew, like for example, he would yell at me and curse obscenities at me and stuff, and I just imagined having a child witness that and witness my abuse and what would that mean for my child's life, how they would treat others or how they would believe they deserve to be treated. So I very clearly was with a bad partner and I pretty quickly was able to separate the two issues. It's like, okay, I'm in a really unsafe environment with this person and as a separate issue, I'm pregnant and I have to figure this out because I didn't want it to be about my relationship. I didn't want to feel like I was making a choice I didn't want him to be to have anything to do with the choice because I knew he didn't have my best interests at hand. I knew it was going to be what he wanted. And almost immediately, if not right away, he started proposing the idea of an abortion. And his tactics were all different. He would say things like, he would yell at me and say, you need to get an abortion, this is wrong. Or then he would move to like charming me and buying me things and treating me nice and being like, you know, I just don't think this is right for us right now. I'm really worried about you. And then he would switch back to anger again. Like I remember one point I was in the shower and he flung open the curtain and started screaming at me. And he was like, get an abortion. Tell me you're getting an abortion. And I screamed at him to get out. And he threw all the towels in the bathroom at my head and then stormed out of the room. So this guy was very clearly positioning himself for me as an enemy in this decision. Like I knew I didn't have a partner. I knew it was something that I had to do completely on my own. And I also knew that if I had a baby, and I actually hoped that if I had a baby that he wouldn't be a part of the picture because again, I've said abuse. So 
this really pivotal moment happened for me when I was talking to this couple who deem themselves prophets. They're Christian prophets. I've been talking to them for years on my spiritual journey. And, you know, in other practices, you might call them psychics or readers or soothsayers, but they were Christian, Christian based, living in Georgia. So they also had very conservative views on the issue of abortion. But God bless these people. They really did a beautiful job of like starting out with a prayer and saying, we're going to step back from the situation and we are just going to see what the spirit brings up, see what comes to us divinely. And I really believe they exercised that in that moment because we would have these phone calls and we would just zone out together and get into a spiritual atmosphere and they would ask me questions and I would just answer what had come to me. And in this particular instance, First of all, when I very first gave him the call, it was Roger, the husband, he picked up the phone and I said, hello. He said, how are you? And he said, oh, you're pregnant. I'll get my wife. So these people were like really tapped in. All he needed was a hello and he had gotten a sense of the situation. So that in prophecy and dealing with someone like that is always such a great ping because you're like, oh, okay, they're tapped into something like, let's pray there's something really beautiful here for me. And within that conversation, it was left very open ended. And I was honestly shocked at how much it felt like it was my choice. I was shocked by how much I felt like divinity was giving me autonomy and free will over this choice. This choice was not something I made lightly at all. And I vacillated. There was one point where I told my friends and my parents I was having, a, I was going to have a baby. My friend Emily kissed me on the stomach and said, hello. And then I wake up the next day in shambles feeling like I shouldn't do it. And it's a bad choice. So this couple, like, in a way, they didn't lead me to any certain direction, despite their own, like, um, I don't want to say spiritual convictions, their own moral stance on it, I guess. Um, they were really just there walking me through it, asking me what my spirit was telling me about the situation. So fast forward, my breaking point was honestly when I was talking to a friend who is a mother. And... She was walking me through her expenses. We got like really down and dirty. She was telling me what it is every month. She said she hired her mom as a nanny. She was like, well, is your family here? I said, no. Is his family going to participate? No, no guarantees. So I looked at it from all different stances, logically, emotionally, and spiritually. And for me, I'm a very spiritual person. So it just kept coming back to the spiritual side of it for me. And... After I talked to this friend, for whatever reason, there was a moment where I was like, no. And I made the appointment. I was at Planned Parenthood, I think $750 later, because our government does not provide abortion money. I split it with this abusive asshole, which is crazy. And I was in the office for, I think, either 10 to 12 hours and they took me from room to room and that's the thing I like I understand Planned Parenthood might have some problematic things and there are some things that I might not agree with but in the instance where I was taken care of 
There was so much tender love and care. They really went out of their way and made us all wait and asked us questions alone about like, are you being abused? Are you making this decision of your own volition? And I would say the giant obstacle in front of me was this haze of hormones. I felt like I wasn't myself and I couldn't make a clear-headed decision on top of all the abuse. So I sort of like just remember being in the room, laying down on the table. There was a point where they have to show you legally the ultrasound. So the nurse showed me the ultrasound or she turned the screen to me and was like, do you want to, you know, do you want to turn around and look at it? And I said, no, I didn't want to see it, um, but they have to present it to you. And then I went and laid out on the table, spread my legs. They asked me if I wanted to play any specific music. And I was just like, no, because at that point I was very in my body, but I just wanted to run away. It's the last place in the world I wanted to be. I definitely count it as a traumatic experience because of the relationship that I was in and the place that I was in, in my life. So I just remember it only took a second. It was very quick. I felt a little bit of pressure. And then the next thing I knew, I was sitting in this other room. They gave me a cookie and some Pedialyte to restore, you know, my liquids and my sugar. And I was just stunned. I was really just like walking around like a zombie. And then I went outside and my boyfriend at the time picked me up and he was on cloud nine. Like this was him getting his life back, getting his freedom back, whatever the hell his perspective was. And he started driving and he was like, I'll get you dinner anywhere you want, which is something he never fucking did. And we had to pull over to the side of the road. I threw up. And then we like drove home and he was treating me so sweetly that night. A couple friends came over. They were asking me how I was. I was on, I, to be honest, found some Oxycontin from a friend because I really just wanted to feel nothing and no pain and zone out. And that's what I did. Just zombied out. The next day I woke up and it was the most painful experience I ever had because it was something that I knew was irreversible. And I went into a panic attack and I started crying and screaming and I was like, she's gone, she's gone. Like I wanted to have sex with him again and like re-invite her back into my body because for me, I felt the presence of a spirit of something and then I felt the absence of something. And I also like to say that not everybody sees it the same way. This is just my spiritual point of view and the experience that I believe that I have. So all of that said, I hadn't checked back in with these prophets that are Christian that I had talked to before. And I finally called them for another appointment, maybe like a week later. And I was sitting on my counter in my kitchen and Roger picked up the phone again, said, hello, hello. And he said, oh, okay, you did it. And again, I hadn't told him anything. And I was like, yes. And he's like, all right, I'll get my wife. So he got his wife and we all prayed together. And he said, her, which is interesting because I hadn't said that to him either. He said, she is lingering around you. Ask her her name. And I heard Rose. So I said, Rose. And then he said, 
is she free to go? Because she is worried about you and she's lingering around because she wants to know whether or not you're okay. And I was really taken aback by that because within my Christian upbringing, I always felt like, or and I didn't feel like, I was told that we got one shot at life, that's it, you're born once, you die once, that's the end. So this was really shattering my perception of that. And I started thinking, okay, so she was a spirit that was residing in my body, and now she's lingering around my body and asking if she can go, if I'm okay, where is she going? So I said to him, no, I'm okay. She doesn't have to stay, but she can come back. Tell her she can come back. And Roger said, but you don't want to tether a spirit to yourself, do you? And I said, no, I guess I don't. And he said, if you're going to set her free, really set her free. So I said, please, you're free to go. Don't worry about me. And we said a little prayer and sent her on her way. And from that point on, I felt such a sense of peace. And I felt that she had gone on, perhaps to find another vessel in another woman. And this whole experience really rocked my view of life and death and birth and the spirit that we carry inside of us. Because at the end of the day, if you have a uterus, a uterus is a portal to somewhere else. And you can say that's hyper-spiritual, but like, how else are you going to describe it? We as women, like, we have our bodies and we are capable of bringing, like descending some human being through our bodies into this world. Where do you believe we go after? Where do you believe we came from? And when I think about that, I'm like, well, I believe God is eternal. I believe that everything that we do is surmountable because we are human beings. We make mistakes. We make choices as we discover ourselves on this planet. And that was a choice I made. And I wound up believing that Rose was actually just inviting me, just inviting me to motherhood. I really believe she was offering me an opportunity and saying, do you want this? Can I come from your body? Like I'm here. What do we think about this? And when I chose to not take that, to not say yes, to not use my body as a portal, she was okay. I felt that to the core of my being, that there was somewhere else she could go. If she was to come back to planet Earth, that she would find another way. There are plenty of uteruses out here on planet Earth. And I mean, I would love to talk to you more about your view on that. But that is how I came to understand life and death and the process as it pertains to abortion. So when I look at the whole issue... It breaks my heart because I know that so many people feel they have made a decision that they can never forgive themselves from. I've spoken to women who are in their 50s or 60s who have an abortion that still brings them pain. And I just think it's interesting to imagine like energy doesn't die, it moves. If I felt a, a burst of energy inside of my own body, and then it was outside of my body. It didn't die. I didn't remove a person's opportunity to live. I simply made a choice to not 
use my body as a portal to not become a mother at that time. And I will also say that if life is some kind of grand, crazy, choose your own adventure, I could have chosen that route. Like I said, I've played with that and gone down that yellow brick road of protecting her from an abusive father, from a drug abuser, what that would look like. That would have been a whole different journey for me, a whole different story. And I chose a different adventure where instead I said no to that opportunity, but that pregnancy and that potential baby catapulted me out of my abusive relationship. I've sometimes wondered whether I kept her or not if she had simply arrived to save me from that abusive relationship. As I listen to your journey, so, some of it when you're when you're attaching your worldview and explaining your worldview that you're coming from, it obviously sounds like a bit of a religious worldview, but in a different word, you're using the word spiritual there. And some, some things you're saying sound, some people, friends of the show might be hearing them, especially maybe Christian friends of the show or atheist friends of the show. And they go, Oh, this is sounding pretty woo and new age and, and okay. Spirits of this and that. And what's interesting is I think you've put it in a way that really for me is sitting there and ticking over in the sense of like, okay, I'm getting this picture of these spirits or something out there that are choosing people and coming into existence and not. But when you said the, the womb is a portal, as I, as I don't know, as I sit with it, I'm like, oh, it doesn't sound as crazy as it sounds in the <laughs> sense. I'm like, I guess there is a level of consciousness that comes forth from a woman in the womb. And I'm like, I guess, and yes, where does the soul come from? So you've, you've raised some very, very interesting questions for friends of the show to, to sit with and digest about that. I'm wondering as people are listening and I didn't end up getting to judging you and confessing my biases at the beginning of the show, which I normally like to do. I like to get them off my chest. And one that's been inkling this whole time is like, you're saying you were Christian you're saying you're a very spiritual person. Surely you can't be a Christian. Do you, do you identify as a Christian with this worldview? Absolutely. I absolutely do. This again goes back to, I think it's interesting again that earlier you used the verbiage of like a moral argument versus like a pragmatic argument. To me, what Jesus displays throughout his entire existence on planet is so much empathy for human beings, so much, you know, taking care of the poor, taking care of those in need. Laying down a law and taking away a woman's right to choose has become something that steals not only autonomy from people, but I, I think really also that spiritual journey of sussing things out for ourselves. Because one thing that a lot of men are not maybe going to experience in the same way is the intuitive power a woman feels when she is carrying a child. And also the intuitive power of a mother. Like one of the great tragedies of abortion being taken away from people is that women know when their fetus isn't viable. They know when it's gonna be a detriment to their child. Like the decision that I made was made out of so much love for my child, out of such a curiosity of what her life might be if I allowed her to be born into an abusive situation. 
So I don't know how I can justify the fact that I'm a Christian except for telling you that I am and that I abide by love mm. and in love. And also that I just don't think it's these surface black and white things that let you know whether or not someone is a quote Christian because in fact also the Bible is extremely pro-abortion. God is, you know, a lot of people say that God is the great abortionist after all because one in three, I think, if not, I'm exaggerating, it's one in five, but I think it's one in three or four pregnancies ends in a miscarriage. So I've heard people say God is the great abortionist because that happens. Good clickbait. I might take that. <laughs> um. But it's true. It's like not every soul needs to come forth. Not every pregnancy is viable or meant to be. And a part of that equation, I really do believe, is spiritual and pragmatic and takes into account the person that is choosing whether or not to bring forth that life. And also, like the Bible actually lays out abortion as a punishment for a woman who might have cheated on her dude. I forget where it is, probably in Hebrews or something. But it lays out that you make the woman drink this certain potion and that if she her she loses her child through a miscarriage, that you know that she cheated on you. But if the baby stays, you know it's your baby. That is very clearly just men abusing the shit out of women. And it's the same thing as the Salem witch trials where we are just being completely cast aside and degraded and treated less than because we are women. When in fact, again, yes, it is our autonomy and our intuitive power that lets us know where we should move in the world. And it's true that not everyone is going to have a wide awake decision when they have an abortion. There are definitely some people who do do it without much thought or don't see it in a hyper spiritual way. But the part of the reason that I still call myself a Christian, of course, is because I am spiritual and I do see it that way. So there's both sides to it. I respect anyone's right to choose what to do with their body. And at the same time, I want to see abortions decrease because I know the pain that it can cause the human being that makes that choice, that sometimes, oftentimes, that choice is so complex and complicated and it rests strictly on the shoulders of the person with the uterus. I know not everyone sees me as Christian, but I also deeply believe that removing someone's God-given free will and autonomy is deeply unchristian as well. Your journey that you've shared sounds very, it sounds very pro-life in, in a sense that my assumptions and biases at the beginning, if I was to confess them to you, I'd be like, you know, well, there's the stereotype of like, ah, oh, you know, it's just a flippant thing. I'll just get it because it's convenient. I'll just get it because it's easy. You know, um, it's, you know, it's, I just it's don't really think about it. it uh, yeah. 12 hours, $750. No, that that's this, this sense I got. And I think people listening and, and friends of the show listening would probably get that sense of, there is perhaps people's biases breaking there of going in in a way I might have, I might've assumed that your justifications to this abortion, the stories you might tell yourself, people say, Oh, well, she's just, she will tell herself a story to make herself feel better about doing something like so horrendous. 
but in your telling, it's so the weight of it still seems there. And also the thing that I thought would be gone that isn't is that I might've assumed that you were a materialist being like, you know, it's not life yet. There's not a soul yet. You know, souls aren't really a thing. You know, it's, it'll develop life. That would have been the argument I thought you would have gone, which it's very fascinating to me that you've probably like very, like the stereotypical pro-lifers it's, it's built around a particular worldview based on the Bible. You, you kind of mentioned it, when you're saying that a soul's a one deal thing, it's like that's a unique soul. When that's gone, it's kind of gone forever. Maybe it goes to heaven, maybe it goes to hell. Whereas you've kind of said you're looking at the Bible too. Your journey being growing up a Christian has led you here with a different metaphysics of the soul, a different base point where you go, okay, a soul is kind of choosing people and moving from from one place to the other. And um, it's almost... People might stereotype it as a new age sounding uh, depiction of the soul. So it's an interesting space to bring it into. There's still that weight. There's still that pro-life wanting less abortions within, within your story and a seriousness to that. It hasn't, doesn't sound like it's been trivialized at all. I suppose my question is for you, you are sitting in a different position to your stereotypical Christian that has a stereo that would say, Brenda, I don't know what you're talking about. You're reading the wrong Bible or you're not reading it properly. I don't know how you get to this conception of the soul, this worldview where you can, you can commune with the soul or that soul's kind of there and you feel the soul and you have these, these uh, so-called Christian people interacting with souls. They would say the Bible doesn't say any of this. You've got a wrong picture of the soul. So you can't be reading the Bible how would you explain how you got to where you are coming from a Christian background and that picture of the soul shifting? Well, one thing to point out is that this idea that new age quote unquote is always vilified. (laughs) It's just Mm -hmm. interesting because every new age practice that Christians or everything that Christians call new age is actually based in ancient practice. A lot of these practices that we call new age, quote unquote, existed before the Bible even existed, before Jesus was even around. So I think. So then the word pagan would be used. They would say, oh, well, then, Brenda, fine. It's not new age. It's pagan. It's like pre Jesus, pre God. It's still heretical, Brenda. (laughs) I just wanted to point out the misnomer and how funny Mm -hmm. and um, not acknowledging of ancient civilizations that term is Mm -hmm. among Christians. But one of the main things to me is that spirituality is it. Like Jesus always told us to steer ourselves away from legalism. He had mystical experiences. He did mystical things like walking on water, meaning that he was manipulating the elements. He told prophecy. He knew prophecy. He was a soothsayer in many ways. So... His mysticism is what I really lean on in my own spiritual practice. And someone that really helps me, one, is that I originally would have thought all of this was insane or that I wasn't, quote, allowed to believe that I wasn't killing a being, that it was a spirit that could move and shift and change. But hearing from two Christians that I had leaned on for many years who are Bible-believing 
conservative Christians, the fact that they invited me into that thinking was sort of my first step into realizing that not all Christians have a very black and white legalistic sort of view of the Bible and what is right and wrong and moral and immoral. And two, Pete Enns is this wonderful theologian that I love. He wrote a book called How the Bible Actually Works. I have an interview with him on my channel as well. And he gave me this beautiful example where I was like, well, how do you know you're going too far? Because I've heard some pastors say, do you know, can you comprehend the expanse of the galaxy? All these new pictures that just came out from NASA, if you look at them and realize what a speck of dust this entire planet is, let alone what a speck of dust each individual is, and how much there is to be explored. We haven't found the bottom of the ocean. We haven't found the end of space. Like We are always in discovery and expansion. I think it's absurd to believe that the Bible stagnated 2,000 years ago, and there's no expansion and learning beyond that. For example, I gave you the example of men just being abusive dicks who were causing women to miscarry because they were accusing someone of cheating. Like, that is in the Bible. That used to be the letter of the law in, I think, Hebrews, like I said. So the fact that we would want to even stagnate in that text I find really ridiculous because God is so much more expansive than that. And I truly believe that our existence on this planet is some sort of divine video game, not to minimize it, but we are clearly here not to thrive and be happy all the time. We are clearly here to reckon with the dichotomy of pain and suffering and fear and love and joyfulness and play. And we as human beings are constantly vacillating through all these emotions we have to contend with, through all the energies and relationships that come to us. And people have been reckoning with these principles for millennia. We've been like wrapped up in the Bible, trying to decipher what it might mean, trying to ping God down to a way in which we can properly digest and be like, oh, we understand God. We know what God wants in this one particular issue. But going back to Pete Enns, what he, what I asked him in all of this exploration, in this notion that God, the galaxy, all of it are so expansive. How could we possibly pin down God? I said, but how do you know if you're going too far? How do you know if your spiritual exploration is ultimately just really hurting the cause and really taking you away from the Bible and God? And Pete ends, not to compare anyone to a dog, but I thought it was a really good analogy. He was saying, imagine you have a dog in your yard and it's on one of those um, like bounce back sort of leashes. So it could be super long. And this dog has this huge field that he can explore and play in and, and maybe get hurt and figure things out. And there comes a point where if he goes too far, he'll get that ping and he'll get pulled back on the leash and he'll know to come back into the space that is safe again. And when I thought about that, a ping like that came to me so subtly and beautifully right before that conversation where I remembered I was contending with all of the clobber passages of Paul. And I was really upset because as a woman, Paul told me to sit down and shut up and not speak. And I was so offended by that. I was just like, God, how can you both love me and tell me to sit down and shut up? 
how can you have that kind of duality? That does not sound right. And frankly, I truly believe my intuitive power was telling me it was wrong because it is wrong. Like um, Paul also says, there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Gentile. We are all one in Jesus Christ. So any sexist points of view should be called into question from my point of view. But all of that said, I remember one day I was praying and I was on this journey and I said, fuck Paul. <laughs> like in conversation with a friend, I was like, you know what? He said this and fuck Paul. And that was the moment that I remembered was like, I was a dog on the leash and I went just a little too far and I got pulled back on the leash. And I often talk about this concept that shame is external, but conviction is internal. Like whatever I felt in that moment was really convicting and it felt wrong. It hit my soul wrong. It was off. It didn't fit. And that night after my friend left, I sat in bed and I humbled myself and I was like, okay, seems like I said something wrong. <laughs> and I don't think it was just the cuss word. I think I said something wrong. And I just asked God, okay, if you're going to tell me that I shouldn't hate Paul, that he is someone that you love, that was a champion of the faith that I believe in, then show me. Help me discover or realize why I shouldn't hate that guy. And honestly, now I have a deep respect for Paul because I don't believe he was ever trying to clobber anyone. I believe he is deeply misinterpreted and misunderstood. That's a whole other podcast. But point being, fear. Whenever you are making a decision or you're building your faith on a foundation of fear, like being like, I don't know if I can explore these concepts or I don't know if I'm allowed to believe that spirit can like, you know, like change and move. I think that's a cue where you can sit down and listen and be like that dog playing in the yard and be like, you know what, I'm going to run around this a little bit. I'm going to play with this a little bit, which obviously is something you do beautifully here on Ideas Digest, because that to me is spirituality that to me is christianity rabbis have this right rabbis know to like pour over the text and argue with each other and they know how to have disagreements and hold different ideas and we as christians should honor each other in the same way again trusting that each and every person is on their own journey and if they land somewhere differently than you then that doesn't disqualify them from being a part of the faith or for sharing the same divine inspiration as you um now I feel like I'm on a tangent, but yeah, I just, these little qualifiers that tell people whether or not I'm a Christian to me are just bogus. There are so many other ways to identify a Christian beyond the list of 15 tenets that you have to prove that you believe. The thread that I hear coming through or behind, or that supports a lot of what you're saying, whether you're talking about how you see yourself as a Christian in your journey to your current spiritual worldview or your journey through navigating the difficult minefield that that abortion is it sounds like that what underpins that what i'm hearing is some level of trust in yourself trust in being able to feel or sense when you're going the right direction if you're headed in a place that god might be leading you but also that trust then extends to other women and other men and other people in the situation where you want to preserve that person's right because you trust them. You inherently say, this is a difficult decision and I wouldn't want to impose a law to kind of control you. And the, the, what I think, what I hear sits behind some of the other, um, 
worldviews within Christianity, because obviously there's a lot of them, is more of a you, we actually can't trust ourselves and you'll actually be led astray. And, and it's a bit more worried about the excesses of the human spirit, looking at greed, going, oh, that's the excess of the human spirit. We as humans can't be trusted in it. That just sounds to be sounds to me like as I try on Artie's Digest to pinpoint the roads at which we diverge. It, it's not always just a difference of opinion. It's a difference of worldview that happens somewhere back there. That's 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 one fork in the road that I feel... I'm noticing there to circle to back to abortion and to bring in some friends of the show that might be listening, that might be disagreeing with everything you're saying. Great. Thanks for tuning in. Send me a DM. I'll send you a golden emoji. Well done. If you can make it an hour, 25 minutes, listen to something you disagree with. That's Olympic grade endurance and well done. But to for the point that they might be waiting for is going, okay, we listen to your story. I, I want to try and take what I've heard. Cause I feel like you've answered in part or in whole, a lot of the pushback people might have and how you see it in comparison to them. But I want to kind of compress it into a little section here and say, so the whole debate that I saw you have on YouTube was the main point Lila was saying was that science says life begins at conception, the end. What I'm hearing from you is a different metaphysics that says, okay, yes, life begins at conception, but it also doesn't end at death. And there's an, there's another element of, of spirit injected in there. What would you say real, like in a few sentences that would respond to that consistent or persistent saying that says life begins at conception, the end, what would you kind of, add to that or respond to that little okay matt i'm very eager to hear your thoughts because you haven't heard this before no you've just listened to it but for super friends of the show they're going to stick around and they're going to hear i'm going to ask how much of this worldview you're buying it especially in contrast to the probably the opposite worldview inverse yeah on everything although both i suppose quote unquote christian worldviews so i'm really eager to hear that so if you'd like to hear my honest thoughts and Matt's honest thoughts, head to itisdigest.org, become a super friend of the show, support the show, you get access to bonus content and you'll get our undying gratitude. Which is worth a lot. It's unmonetizable, Matt. We actually have a huge vision as to how itisdigest can hopefully make the world a better place. It's So many no. ideas are dividing families, friends, and we believe that um, if we can bring these ideas together, if we can wear them on for you, if we can... Um, take the flack of <laughs> take the some bullets. of these crazy ideas, <laughs> then um, maybe that next conversation at the water cooler at work might be less triggering. Christmas dinner, you might be prepared. Yeah, you might be just like not ghosting your family or something. <laughs> yes. Or Which would be great. Stepping on eggshells when someone's trying to pass the turkey. Head over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast, five stars. And if you want to make contact with us, itisdigest at gmail.com. We'd or, love to hear from you. Yes, love to hear from you. Any show ideas, send them through. Thanks for tuning in. And I'll catch you in the next episode.